everyone. Glad to have you back again, again, again. I'm apologizing for my sporadic Trapcast releases. And I'll just tell you a secret about my podcasting credo. You know, I don't actually look at how many downloads I have on any of my shows, the main show or the show. So, you know, I have no idea if anyone is ever listening um, unless somebody reaches out and contacts me and a handful of you have. And I'm really, really happy about that, um, that anyone turns out for these is amazing. You know, it's it's a super niche kind of thing I'm doing. And I just want you to know it means an awful lot to me. And I wish I could set a better timeline for myself. I had a more um, consistent release schedule, I feel like more people might turn out. But, you know, a lot of you know that some of how I even survive in this world comes from freelancing. And, you know, if something lands in my lap, I really have to push everything else aside. And um, that just really pains me. But I do want to say that the end of 2020 brought some really good work for me. And if you listen to the regular Made for TV Mayhem show, you've probably heard about some of the things I've worked on. I don't really mention them here. But I will say 2020 wasn't all bad um, in terms of my work. The rest of it, Nah, it wasn't great, right? It was still pretty bad, but made a little worse because I really wanted this to be my last podcast release of 2020. I'd set a goal for myself for the last week of the year to record a trap cast. I wanted to end the year on a high note and feel like I'd done something, but you know, I got sick over the holidays. It was just a very bad allergic reaction. I'm still kind of suffering from it. Um, you might hear it in my voice, so I have to apologize for that. You know, I ended up spending the last days of the year mostly watching soaps and sleeping. Uh, you know, I'm not going to complain about it, but the idea of doing anything that required the thought of the spoken word was O-U-T. So I'm just going to open 2021 with the trap cast. And I guess that's just as good, if not even better. So let's go. <laughs> On this episode, I'll be discussing the Trapper John episodes, Taxi in the Rain and License to Kill. But before I dive into those, I wanted to talk just a little bit more about season one of the series and provide a little Trapper-centric context uh, with some info about a new mid-season replacement that happened during this first season of Trapper John. And you probably know where I'm going, but just stick with me here. By December of 1979, Trapper John was a bona fide hit and apparently the only new show that was consistently pulling in really good ratings. The critics still hated it and they figured the success of the series was in the late night Sunday time slot. You know, it aired after 60 Minutes, Archie Bunker's Place, One Day at a Time, Alice and the Jeffersons, you know, right? And those were all proven hits for CBS on Sunday evenings. There was a syndicated columnist that argued that if you drop the show into another time slot, Trapper John would bomb. But since CBS didn't mess with perfection, I don't believe we ever had to find out. And I'm so happy about that. So as I mentioned before, Trapper John was a very conventional show. I don't think I've ever argued against that, even though they do have some really interesting things happening within the convention of it, right? But um, despite working on that uh, fairly defined blueprint, as I've just said, it's not just about the structure. It's about what they do inside of it. And by December of 1979, Trapper John was beginning to flesh out some of the characters and the show was finding its footing. Pretty well, too, I think.
But December 1979 also saw the premiere of a new series, which was also airing on CBS. And of course, that was House Calls. That was based on the popular Walter Matthau theatrical that came out the year before in 1978. The series made its network debut on December 17, 1979. That's another reason why I wanted to have this out in December, because I wanted to hit on it in the month that it premiered. It was not to be. But anyway, let's go back to House Calls proper. Uh, the critics were far more kind to House Calls. One actually said he thought House Calls was the best comedy uh, with a doctor since the Bob Newhart show. It was definitely more sophisticated than Trapper John, and I did watch it, but I would have been like eight, so I don't think I fully understood what I was watching. So while I think there's something to be said for sophistication, there's even more to be said about a show with heart. I'm certainly not saying House Calls didn't have heart, but it was aiming for something else, and it ended up having kind of a rocky go, even though it was a pretty successful show. In the first episode of House Calls, uh, Wayne Rogers is introduced as Dr. Charlie Michaels. Of course, his character is based off Mathau's character in the film. One critic called Wayne Rogers Trapper Charlie because he was still so defined by his role on M.A.S.H. I know that was a tough thing for Wayne Rogers to escape. Dr. Michaels has a bit of a love-hate relationship with a hospital administrator named Anne Atkinson, played by the great Lynn Redgrave. And of course, a lot of the chemistry from the series came from this sort of will they or won't they set up, you know, kind of like Moonlighting would do later. Like Mash and Trapper John, the doctors were mostly unruly and played outside of the box. And um, yes, it was a big hit for CBS, even in his last season when Lynn Redgrave was let go from her contract. Um, Sharon Gless came in and she starred in the last handful of episodes. There's actually an interview with Sharon Gless about it in a TV guide. And if I can find it, um, I will share it with you. But she gives some insight into the production of House Calls, which is really interesting. So anyway, that critic I just mentioned said that Trapper John was a success because of the time slot. But, you know, couldn't you argue that CBS putting house calls into the Monday night 930 time slot was a bit of genius programming since it would run directly after MASH? which was a huge hit for CBS and one that had a direct tie to Rogers. So it's really about the programming, right? I mean, we should just be upfront about that. And, you know, I think I mentioned this on an earlier episode, but Charles Siebert, of course, who played Dr. Riverside, speculated himself on the success of Trapper John. He believed it did so well because on Sunday night, everyone was gearing up for the beginning of the work week and they weren't interested in anything heavy. Trapper John was a good way to end the weekend. It always kind of had a feel-good, you know, feeling at the end of it. So basically, it was like a big old comfort blanket. I mean, Siebert didn't say that, but basically, that's what he meant. And it made me think about some other big comfort blanket shows that also aired on Sunday nights. Of course, we had Murder, She Wrote and Crazy Like a Fox. Both of those aired before Trapper John in the mid-1980s. And of course, those are the only shows I could think of, but still, you know, right? These are big, big, big comfort blankets. But... I think we're about to get into the biggest comfy blanket of all when we talk about these next two episodes of Trapper John. Taxi in the Rain originally aired on December 2nd, 1979. It featured a terrific cast of guest stars, including Lucille Benson, Anita Gillette, and William Wyndham. In this episode, there's a kind of a rich fast food tycoon named Billy Joe Brady. 
He's a benefactor to the free clinic in which most of the staff at Trapper's Hospital do volunteer work at. Billy Joe decided to refunnel his money to build a tower at the hospital in tribute to his little old mother, Clarissa May Purcell, who's played by the great and wonderful Lucille Benson, who I think you probably know best if you're a TV movie fan for playing the woman who owns the Snake-O-Rama in Duel. Would you mind checking those radiator hoses? I'll do that. Take a look at my snakes if you have time. But, you know, she's been in a ton of things. I always think of her from Bosom Buddies, of course, first. Of course, right, Peter Scolari. Anyway, the refunneling of the money means that the free clinic can no longer be free and will have to be shut down. The clinic is a host to a large section of the poorer community of San Francisco. And Harry the Hinge is a regular customer. Delicious. My compliments to the chef. Harry, give the others a break, will you? Oh, you doctors. A room full of people writhing in agony. Doesn't faze you. But let a guy reach into the cookie jar twice. What agony are you selling this week? Renal failure, both kidneys, respiratory distress, nausea, back pain, extreme dizziness. Harry, a person can get very ill reading medical textbooks. <laughs> You'd love it if all the victims were in ignorance, wouldn't you, wouldn't you? Look, just huh? do us a favor and take your phony symptoms and go. Well, what's that for? I'm buying back those cookies. Yeah? For another buck? I'll throw in the prune danish. Out. Okay. All right. Have it your way. But next time, you guys will have to beg me to come back to this place. The great William Wyndham plays Harry, of course, from Murder, She Wrote, which I just mentioned. Harry comes into the free clinic every week with some concocted illness so he can snake a couple of the free cookies and danishes. He's really bright, um, and he sometimes uses heady medical jargon to feign these illnesses. But of course, Harry is actually really sick, and he's hiding it. In the meantime... Jackpot and Gonzo liberate some of the older, more obsolete equipment being housed in the basement and pull it into the Titanic, where they create a sort of makeshift clinic for the patients. And of course, my first thought, right? Gonzo has had sex all over that thing. Could it possibly be sanitary? I don't know. But it's a rather charitable effort, and it can work for the patients who need easier care, I think. The news catch wind of the pop-up clinic, and they interview Gonzo, who goes out of his way to create a scandal for Billy Joe. You next? Uh, Bowen, San Francisco Dispatch. I thought the uh, funds for the free clinic had been cut off. They were. Why? One of our benefactors, uh, Bobby Joe Brady, the Chicken Burger King, wanted his money put to more dignified use. Brady Medical Tower? Yeah, Brady's Folly. Uh, $25 million worth of self-indulgence. Can I quote you on that? Only if you spell my name right. G-A-T-E-S. You and the other intern out there, you from San Francisco Memorial? Yeah, it's our day off. Well, then who's paying for all this? <laughs> we forgot to ask. And then Harry comes in for a visit, falls to the ground in pain, and is checked into the hospital, which is approximately 15 feet away from the Titanic. So it's perfect timing for Harry, right? Turns out Harry needs a kidney, but he refuses to tell anyone his last name or if he has any relatives. Luckily, Brancusi finds an old newspaper clipping of a woman named Teresa Duvall in Harry's wallet. Um, when the hospital calls her, she claims her dad is dead. There's no Harry Duvall in my family. For a moment, Miss Duvall, we thought he might even be your father. My father died 20 years ago. Is there any way that we can persuade you to stop by and meet this man, just for a few minutes? 
I, I really see no point in this. Um, I'm sorry, Dr. Gates, you have the wrong party. Harry says he got the clipping because he'd helped that woman get a taxi in the rain once, and she gave him a few dollars. Then a couple days later, he saw her in the newspaper, and he saved it. Whatever, Harry, we're on to you, right? So Teresa gets called in, and uh, somehow this story starts to circulate that her father was actually a man of great means. So Gonzo and company squeeze him into the presidential suite of the hospital while Clarissa May is in radiology. And then a lot of stuff happens to reunite Teresa and Harry and to get the clinic back on its feet. It is to date probably the most ambitious use of reverse psychology we've seen. It's basically worth $28 million. Oh, Dr. Gates, I don't know how to thank you enough. What's this man doing in my mama's room? Uh, Mr. Brady, this is Mr. Duvall. Who? Harry Duvall, the uh, internationally renowned industrial tycoon and philanthropist. I don't know what you're doing here. Well, I... Mr. Duvall is a patient here. He wanted to check out our finest, most elegant accommodations. Uh, what do you think of it, sir? Uh, oh, tacky. Yeah, I definitely get the impression that I am slumming. You saying uh, Clarissa May Brady uh, sweet ain't good enough for you? Oh, you're that, Mr. Brady. Well, no wonder. What do you mean, no wonder? You're the fellow that's putting up that $15 million tower, aren't you? $25 million pard. You do better. Well, nothing's been finalized yet, of course, but uh, Mr. Duvall is planning to reopen our free clinic in a nice new building of his own with a large contribution. $27 million five. You got uh, Italian marble in that building? No, just uh, good medical care, free of charge. I'm a businessman, Mr. Brady, and I think it's better business to help people than to impress them. This is an extremely sweet and warm episode. On the surface, it's about reuniting a long-lost dad with his daughter, but underneath that is this sort of long-standing debate about universal health care. It manages to take the viewer you know, with a light touch, of course, through the ins and outs of the hierarchy of medical care and how the most basic needs can't even be met without things like a free clinic. For instance, Gonzo is treating an older man who has this kind of chronic shaking. He cannot give himself his daily insulin shots because of it, and so he has to go into the clinic because he has no one to help him with his insulin. The clinic also treats young people who injure themselves even when they might have done something not great, meaning that their medical care is private and nobody's going to release the information to somebody else like the police. So regardless of how or why they end up at the free clinic, everyone gets equal care. Later in the episode, though, we're giving a bird's eye view of the presidential suite of the hospital. And, you know, when I first watched this one, I thought that was a joke. Like they just made up the presidential suite, right? Like how can any hospital that doesn't normally serve dignitaries possibly have a suite like that? But, you know, they do exist and they have a pretty long history. It's lunchtime at the Henry Ford Hospital in West Bloomfield, Michigan. But don't look for day-old jello served on a fiberglass tray at this cafeteria. Here, it's a restaurant with a menu comprised of fresh and healthy food, much of which is grown on site in their own greenhouse. What are you growing here? Well, actually, you know, this is fresh basil. Nancy Schlichting is CEO of the Henry Ford Health System. Her goal was to build a new kind of hospital, one that would become a go-to destination, a place people actually wanted to be. Do you know anybody who's excited to go to the hospital? No. There was an article in 1983 about two presidential suites and two hospitals. Um, of course, they were used for high-placed politicians, which is exactly how I envisioned them. They had mixed scorecards. The article was sort of about how their treatment was marked against um, the payment to care for them. The rooms were quite expensive, but, um, you know, the medical care was covered under the price of the room, which helps, I think. 
Later, the idea of the presidential suite kind of expanded, and there was an article in 2016 about hospital rooms with marble tubs and even service staff. Um, Now, these rooms uh, should be available to anyone willing to pay. And upon a survey, they found that most would pay 30% above a hospital room's normal ticket price, out of pocket, by the way, if they felt like it, it was a hotel with more amenities. In this survey that I read, there wasn't much said about the quality of the medical staff, but it was suggested by the Boston University School of Hospitality Administration that the more uh, luxuries a room or hospital offered, the more likely it would lead to healthier outcomes. Meaning uh, the customer service uh, component Uh, was covered in the price tag and was offered in terms of aesthetics and hospitality. And that would lead to you feeling better about staying in the hospital. And that would lead to a healthier outcome, which actually sort of makes sense to me. In 2006, there was an article written about the top 10 luxury hospitals. Uh, Most of the costs of these were, of course, out of pocket. And here's a description of one that I think is apt of what the general services offered were. This is St. Luke's Episcopal, which is located in Houston. The article says, newly redesigned this year, which would be 2006, the terrace is now located on the 23rd floor and has nine oversized suites priced for domestic patients at $900 to $1,000 out of pocket. Rooms have floor-to-ceiling views of the Houston skyline, as well as private bathrooms, DVD and CD players. Um, Food is prepared in St. Luke's main kitchen by a dedicated chef who consults with patients about dietary whims and needs. Seated unit security is a big draw for international clientele. They come to St. Luke's for cardiac, neuro, and transplant programs. So using an impoverished character like Harry to show how the basic human needs are seldom met at certain levels of society and then placing him into basically the penthouse of hospital rooms was a really interesting device that I think opened up the discussion about medical care, its expenses, and to ask the audience whether or not they felt this was sort of on any kind of equal playing ground. I mean, even Billy Joe doesn't like it, but, you know, he needs Trap and his band of do-gooders to kind of show this to him, of course. Um, Still, everyone gets a mostly happy ending, including myself, because here's one of the episodes that ends with Trap and Gonzo sipping wine on the Titanic. Well, just like that, he canceled his plans to build the new Brady Tower. How come? Well, Mr. Brady has decided to uh, remodel, refurbish, and reopen the free clinic instead. (laughs) Can he do it? He's done it. A donation of $28 million. Beautiful. Ought to keep it going a long time. (laughs) Have a chicken burger? Oh, yeah. Lockheim, y'all. Before I leave this episode alone, I did want to mention that Harry does not get the kidney he needs and instead has to rely on dialysis to survive. It is assumed that someone will be picking up the tab for him, so it's really not cut and dry, but it does give us hope that equal medical care is available for all. And I think that's a really nice thing to hope for, isn't it? Taxing the Rain was directed by Barry Crane. Uh, Crane would go on to direct several episodes, but this is his first one. Um, the teleplay is by a man named Shyman, and I hope I got that right, Shyman Winselberg. Um, he also wrote The Shattered Image, which I believe I discussed in the last episode. Um, and these were his only two scripts for the series. <laughs> The next episode is titled License to Kill and originally aired on December 9, 1979. 
This one is one I really enjoy, even though I think it's really convoluted. So I'm going to make the plot breakdown pretty brief because I always have a hard time kind of figuring out what's happening here. Um, so anyway, the wonderful Robert Davi plays a cop named Officer Ed Buxton. At the opening, he is seen leaving the courtroom after standing trial for killing someone who's presumed innocent, right? He has been found not guilty. So while trying to get out of reach of the reporters mobbing him, he's shot and sent to Trapper's Hospital. Being the good doctors they are, it looks like Buxton is set to make a positive and full recovery. At the same time, Trapper's ex, Melanie, who is played by Jessica Walter, is visiting Trap because she needs money to fix her car. This leads to a minor argument between them. What's this all about? Trapper, why don't we wait till after lunch? Kids okay? Oh, sure, they're fine. Good job? Mm-hmm. Better than ever. You're not sick. No, I'm not. Well, it was so important. Tell me. All right. I need a loan. <laughs> ah, for a minute you had me. Actually, it's not a loan. It's just an advance on my alimony. My car is in the shop again. Well, you know the trouble I've been having with it lately. This time it died on me right in the middle of rush hour traffic. How much do you want? Now, I've worked it all out. I can pay you back just as soon well, as... You don't have to pay me back. I mean, uh... It's a gift. I mean, happy birthday. Trapper, it isn't my birthday. I came to you for a loan, a formal request for capital to be paid back with interest. Melanie, I want to give you the money. If it makes you feel better to pay it back, fine. With interest. Fine, with interest. You don't think I can pay it back, do you? Oh, for God's sake, Melly! I just thought you would appreciate the favor. I should have known this would turn into a mess. And who started that? Shortly afterwards, she hails a cab, only to find herself kidnapped by a small group of radicals who want to see Buxton dead. By small, I mean three people. Possibly four if you count the uh, obvious plant working at the hospital. So yeah, three or four mid-30s white middle-class-looking people who I guess are runoffs of the counterculture movement, um, but also four people who look like they never actually spent time in real life together. None of them look like the stereotypical radical, which I guess in a way is interesting. Melanie is held hostage and her kidnappers inform Trapper that he must find a way to kill Buxton if he'd like to see her alive again. Yet, they don't realize that she's actually his ex-wife and things get hinky and crazy from there. So I enjoy this episode mostly for the acting. I've always considered License to Kill to be a sort of minor tour de force for Penelope Roberts, who gives a truly great performance here as the frazzled, terrified ex-husband who doesn't know what to do. Trapper, that gastric resection in 410 wants to see you. Send Reuben. She doesn't want Dr. Reuben. She says his hands are cold. She wants you. I said get Reuben. I'm busy. Hey, Trapper, wait up. Later. No, not later. Ever since yesterday, you've been hot-headed, distant, and temperamental. You throw me off a case, you, you yell at starch, you're practically kicking dogs and children. Now, I want to know what's eating you. Nothing's eating me. Oh, come on, Trapper. Something's got to be... What? Ow! I don't want you involved. Involved in what? Damn it, friends get involved. Now, until you tell me what's going on, I'm not going to let you off the hook. So they, uh, they want Buxton's life in exchange for Melanie's. Now you know as much as I do. 
Have you told anybody else? Have you notified the police? Slocum and the administration, uh, the police, and uh, to now you. Uh, what are they doing? What'd they say? <laughs> that I am to uh, continue things as normally as possible. Slowly, throughout the episode, Trapper begins to reveal a situation to the head administrator of the hospital, um, who's named Arnold Slocum, then Gonzo, and, you know, of course, the police. The story is kind of messy. Uh, you know, I mean, the radical group doesn't make sense to me at all. But it's just the terrific acting that keeps me going. Jessica Walter is in top form, as per her usual, as is Christopher Tabori, who plays the leader of the group, Ian. And, you know, structurally, License to Kill can be broken down into a couple of different pretty meaty elements. So let's talk about those for a second. So for one, the argument that Melanie has with Trapper over the car is not so much about the car as it is about her ability to take care of herself. So one of the more interesting through stories of the season so far appears to be the relationship between Melanie and Trapper. Both love each other and to some degree, I think they still seem to be in love with each other. But the divorce has provided Melanie a way to become her own person. While she needs some financial help, obviously, uh, Melanie has worked her way up her the sort of quote-unquote corporate ladder at her job, moving from clerk to buyer. She's just as passionate about her work as Trapper is about his. And while I think on the outside world, um, one job may seem more important than the other, I think it's worth noting that as far as I know, Melanie was a housewife and a mother before the divorce. Her job has given her life um, a new meaning, right? And it's one that she takes great pride in. She's also incredibly smart. To some degree in this episode, she actually saves herself, even though her ultimate rescue does come when Trap and the police locate her. But there's this great moment in the beginning of the episode where Melanie says she spends most of her time with Trapper um, actually waiting on him instead of spending time with him. And while she's waiting, she reads a lot of medical journals. Oh, good, you're still here. Trap is on his way. He had to see some patients after he finished surgery. Oh, that's all right. This is fascinating. I'm yeah. learning all kinds of things. Starch, did you know that this spot on my hand could be dermatofibroma? Mm -hmm. And this thing on my knee could be adiposis delarosa. And do you know that last month's issue was even better than this? The wonderful world of fungi. I could hardly put it down. You couldn't. Huh? Well, Trapper should have married someone like you. Oh, come on. It deprived you of all those alimony checks. Besides, you know, once you've swapped sutures with a man, the thrill is gone. The jargon she picks up along the way allows her to con the radicals into thinking that one of them needs emergency medical attention. Doesn't look so bad to me. I don't know. Ow! Ow! Oh! Oh! The uh, bullets penetrated the... Adiposis Dolorosa. And you said she doesn't know anything. I've heard about cases like this when my husband was in Korea. Can you feel this? <laughs> That's what I was afraid of. The bullets lodged in the arterial canal, possibly lacerating the dermatofibroma. Oh, no, I've heard of that. Unless you get him to a hospital right away, it, it could cause a fatal contusion to the aortic capillary. We're not taking him to any hospital. Too many questions. But he needs help. Then there's the somewhat relevant story about Buxton, right? A cop racked with guilt over killing an innocent person. It's really hard to be in this day and age and not think about our perspectives on this storyline and what it means to us in this moment. And I'm not going to dive into it, but I do find that what, what they're doing here is interesting. 
seems a little conventional and maybe I agree with it, maybe I don't, but I do think it's an interesting element to the episode. And then, of course, there's the moral struggle of Trapper. He would never endanger someone's life. He's a doctor, but he does love Melanie, and essentially every move taken to resolve the problem has to come from someone else. Trapper is basically helpless here, something we don't really see a lot in the show. He's not even aware of the major con that Gonzo puts together with Slocum until after it's done. Ha! A scam! It was our only way, Trapper. You mean, I mean the whole thing? I mean, the, the post-op emergency? That everything... It was all a con. They wanted Buxton dead by midnight, so we staged the whole thing. Well, you're something else. You know that? Uh, Arnie, I, I'm sorry about all that stuff. It's all right. Yeah. All right, all right. Anybody else in on this? Just the immediate surgical team. They had to know. Yeah, they got a little suspicious when there was no one on the OR table. <laughs> okay, okay. So the point is, in these kind of shows, we're always seeing the protagonist making decisions and the right decisions. But here, Trapper's too emotionally involved and he needs a little help along the way. And I think this is probably the right episode to introduce the character of Arnold Slocum. So now Slocum was played by Arnold Scott in over 80 episodes, and he's kind of like a drier, less engaging version of Aston from Quincy. I like here that he's willing to play along with Gonzo if it means helping Trapper and possibly saving Melanie. But I don't know that Slocum will always feel that warm to me. Later, I think he becomes more overbearing, which takes some of the pressure off of Riverside in that Slocum becomes the more number crunching by the book guy, right, on staff. And and I do like Slocum. I like him. But I prefer Riverside, of course. And I think Aston on Quincy is probably a much better portrayal of that kind of character and to be fair Aston is one of my all-time favorite characters on television um he's the sweetest most adorable number cruncher I can think of other than Bosley from Charlie's Angels but anyway I think the addition here is pretty good um and let's let Riverside just be a goofball because that's what he's good at right License to Kill was directed by Bernard McAviti and I think I said that right um he also directed one more for my baby which uh, I think is the superior episode of the two he would go on to direct a handful more episodes of the series uh He's mostly an episodic director, but he's best known to me for directing a terrific horror movie. I think it came out in 1971 called The Brotherhood of Satan. He's done a couple of made-for-TV movies too, so I'm hoping uh, as we go further into this uh, podcast journey, we can take a closer look at him at some point because he's a really interesting character. The episode was written by two women, Deborah Zoe Dawson and Victoria Johns. Uh, Both Johns and Dawson were also story consultants and producers on the series. And I think they were kind of a duo. Um, They worked on a couple of things together, including The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis and My Sister Sam. And they also worked together on the Aaron Spelling medical drama Nightingales, which may or may not come up uh, on this podcast just because it's a medical drama. We have something for the mail trap. My good friend Stan Peel said this. Hey Amanda, this is Stan. Thanks for letting me throw in my two cents about these two uh, awesome episodes. Um, I was unexpectedly moved by, by Taxi in the Rain. It's, it's clear to me by now that, that Trapper John the show is really good at relationships. The dynamic between Harry the Hinge and Teresa was complex and it was full of surprises. I never really knew where they're their scene together was was headed, and every bit of it felt real. Um, and then when she was ready to leave, and she suddenly ran and hugged him, I I kind of gasped. I was it, it was surprising and and so touching. 
Uh, and the subplot of the, uh, the medical tower as a vanity project, it seemed so timely and relatable. There's something about this millionaire who didn't seem to understand what people needed and only wanted to feed his own ego. Very familiar. And I, I really appreciated how these two seemingly unrelated, unrelated plot lines uh, kind of wove together. Now, I was slightly distracted by the idea that Gonzo could make a public statement trashing Bobby Joe Brady, and by extension, the hospital, without any real consequences. But I suppose non-disparagement clauses and, and non-disclosure agreements are, are part of the more recent world, and we're just used to it. Now, License to Kill was a really interesting premise, and I, I liked that it brought up so many interesting issues, uh, police brutality, medical ethics, how far is too far for a good cause? And, and the acting was, was really terrific across the board. The, the, the thing that felt out of balance for me was the overall tone. Uh, it seemed intensely serious for most of the episode. I was really afraid for Melanie's safety, as, as well as the two less crazy kidnappers. Um, but once Melanie diagnosed the killer's gunshot wound, the tone suddenly shifted to a more light comedy. Just something about the way she delivered all that that just seemed so uh, daffy. I, I, I mean, I still enjoyed it, but the, the high stakes that they had established were suddenly gone. And once they lightened the mood, which, which I guess by then may have been needed, suddenly you knew nobody was going to get hurt, and it just kind of deflated all the tension. Uh, um, now, I have questions about some of the sloppy FBI procedures, though I know that that was in service to the drama and keeping our regular characters involved, but the bust at the end was kind of a goofy mess. I mean, those three guys crowded in the door with the rifles, and then Trapper storms in before the room is even really secured. It was messy, but... but Still a good episode overall when you focus on the relationships, Trapper and Gonzo, Trapper and Melanie, which I believe is the point. Hey, Stan, thank you again so much for your incredible feedback. You did in, what, like three minutes what I tried to do in like 25. Um, you kind of said everything that I said, but better. So I think we're actually in agreement on these episodes. You know, you you kind of noticed the relevancy of the Vanity Project, right, of building the tower it is a pretty moving episode, which I didn't mention. I, I do enjoy it, but it's William Wyndham. I mean, everything he does, um, there's so much presence there. And Anita Gillette is uh, just as good as he is in this um, episode. And I probably should have mentioned that. She, again, too, was on Quincy as well in the last season, um, playing his wife. Um, who knew Quincy would ever get attached, right? But that's what I always think of her as. And it was nice to see her in sort of a different kind of role. But something that you mentioned that I think is really interesting, and maybe I haven't harped on it enough, is that... Uh, Trapper John is at its best when it's dealing with relationships. And of course, that maybe seems obvious because in a way, it's like the love boat, right, of medical dramas. And it's not like there have never been other medical shows like this where you spend time with the patients and the doctors sort of navigate you through their stories. But it, it is about not just how the uh, doctors deal with all these different types of personalities in their patients, but how the patients deal with all these different types of personalities within their own kind of pre-existing lives that we hadn't seen before. Um, I think one more for my baby, which is an episode I remember you really liking, is an episode that's been sticking out to me a lot lately, but it is dealing a lot with um, 
you know, a woman and an alcoholic son and what's going on in their life. And it's less about her cancer, actually, which is really interesting because she, as far as I can tell, is dying. The idea of relationships and exploring them on a deeper level is something that maybe I should be doing. And so I'm really glad you mentioned it. Um, And I think we're totally on the same page for License to Kill. Uh, You said the same thing I did about the acting. I agree. This episode is all about the acting. It's just so good. For me, this is the episode where Pernell Roberts really comes out as like the wonderful great actor that he is, and I love it. Um, But of course, you brought up the idea of the relevancy of police brutality and of course, medical ethics, which is always relevant, right? The Like you said, it's an interesting premise, but it's really kind of messily handled. And I do agree it loses its tone as it goes on. I kind of like the end where she's giving the guy who got shot in the leg this really crazy medical jargon to make him think that he's in worse condition than he is but you're right as compared to the whole other episode I mean they've kidnapped this woman they're planning on probably killing her they're keeping her in a closet I mean they're doing a lot of not great things and Pernell Roberts character is so racked with like pain and he's upset and uncertainty you know and and then they kind of lose that by the end but I think it's kind of neatly bookended by sort of uh, their relationship as adversaries and as two people who love each other. When I say the word adversary, I mean as a divorced couple who divorce because they have this sort of friction between them. But also there's a lot of great love between them as well. And that's handled really well in this episode. I think this is the episode where we really see how important Melanie is to Trapper. The police component is something I didn't really comment on because I don't think it's very well handled. There's a previous episode Um, It might have been the one about the guy suffering from PTSD from Vietnam, where the police subplot is just really poorly handled. So I didn't even mention it. You know, it's not even worth it to me. But yeah, overall, these are two pretty good episodes. And I'm really glad you enjoyed them. And my response to you lasted longer than your feedback. Thanks again, Stan, for sending in your comments. They're always appreciated. Finally, I should have mentioned this trap fact some time back when I talked about love is a three-way street, but I didn't know this fact until just last week. So did you know that Monty Markham and Jessica Walter also appeared together in an episode of Matt Houston titled Joey's Here? This episode also starred David Cassidy, Troy Donahue, and Norman Fell, and it's a lot of fun. I just saw it for the first time about a week ago. Monty and Jessica also appeared in um, an episode of the series FBI titled The Recruiter, which aired in 1971. And so I'm going to assume that these two are good friends and are two people that I would like to have lunch with one day. Next on Trapper Jo. Okay, so here we are at the end of the episode. Uh, I'm going to do my best to be more consistent with the Trapcast. That's, I guess, my resolution of 2021. And so in the next episode, we'll be discussing The Surrogate, which is an episode I've seen quite a few times. Um, I'm not sure why exactly, but it's a pretty good one. And one titled Whose Little Hero Are You? which might be a little bit Riverside-centric. Hooray for that, right? And if you have any comments, feel free to drop me a line at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.